the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and as always, my good friends Mike and Brian are here with me. Mike, how are you doing, my man? I am doing pretty sleepy today, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Brian? I'm just going to channel that energy to get all of our listeners all pumped up and excited to listen to another episode of Geek at Arms. How great would it be if we just did an episode like that? <laughs> because they'd all be asleep. <laughs> <laughs> This is nap time at Geek at Arms. <laughs> it's our most chill, laid back, and weird episodes, but we have 600 downloads. I, I don't get it. I'm just going to have Mike go get his cat, have it purr into the microphone. <laughs> that oh, does I love make Geek at Arms now. I download their episodes to play for my children to make them go to sleep. <laughs> Those children are going to be having some really weird dreams. Mm-hmm. But they all keep asking me, like, Mommy, can I read a book by Jim Butcher? <laughs> Gosh, how great would it be if it was legal for us to have story time at Geek at Arms? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. But Brian, how are you doing, man? I am very happy to be here with you guys. Same. It is These holidays were weird. It's been a, a couple of months since we last recorded together. I was talking about that with, with my wife, Joy. And about how bad I felt that it's been so long since we recorded together. And she reminded me between the holidays, between people getting sick, we're still dealing with COVID. These last couple of months have just basically been about surviving. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that was the case for us. You know, the fact that we are back together and we are recording, I am thankful for. Me too. Me three. Excellent. Let's geek out then. And they were all in one accord. Yay. Where are we well, driving? I'll start off this time. Uh, well, I'm not driving because well, when said, I do, bad things happen. Well, you said we were in one accord. <laughs> I, I wonder. Well, Mike hasn't heard the story about my winter uh, adventure, I have you? Caught like little bits and pieces the, of the fact that things went sideways for you on the way back it, to. It's really LA. optimistic to refer to it as an adventure, isn't it? <laughs> if you had been driving through this winter wonderland, it looked like I was. I would not have been surprised to see Mr. Tumnus waving at me from the side of the road. It was an adventure. You're going uh, the wrong way. <laughs> I got uh, caught by a blizzard in Flagstaff. Had to uh, stop my, my drive home early. And in the time between when I parked my car and got into the hotel room, I looked out and there was already like three inches of snow uh, on the ground just in that brief amount of time. And I come out in the next morning and it's like we they'd gotten more than a foot overnight. And so it's like the weather is not looking bad. I think I can make it down if I if I get to the highway. But <laughs> I had forgotten as I was going into Flagstaff, I had turned off I turned on the avoid highways on my GPS. <gasps> so and I'd forgotten about this. And so it's taking me down this like windy canyon road. Uh, between Flagstaff and Sedona, Arizona, the, the the snow is knee deep, and I see this guy hitchhiking on this little road. I'm like, oh, I don't normally pick up hitchhikers, but this is not weather to be doing that. So I stopped for this guy, 
And of course, he's incredibly thankful. And it turns out he hitchhikes to and from work every day down this road. Huh. His name was Moshe. And if I hadn't had him in the car guiding me down this, because this is like hairpin turns and slick and everything. He's, he's like, okay, well, this is 20 miles an hour when it's sunny and, and nice. So you got to go real slow. And he's telling me what's coming up and telling me all of these stories about the, the people who'd come here in the 1920s to there was a, a land grab and, oh, hey, that restaurant over there is run by the mob. And all of these, these things that he's telling me about the history of the area and the, the people there and guiding me down this, this hill. And if he hadn't been there, I guarantee I would have wound up in a ditch. I kind of expect but, this story to end with, and then when you went to go fill up with gas, the gas station attendant gone. said, Moshe, Moshe died on that road 30 years ago. <laughs> no, Mike, Mike, what we aren't realizing is that we're actually talking to Moshe right now. Moshe, <laughs> sir, I'm going to ask you, what have you done with Brian? Did you leave him in the ditch? And how can we get him back? Also, are you available to talk with us for the rest of the podcast? And do you have access to his PlayStation? And do you want to play Destiny? <laughs> anyway, but we're coming down and the, the snow had come down so fast that everything was still green underneath it. Hmm. But the entire world, I'm like, there was, it was overcast sky. So the, oh. the sky was just white. The road was white. All of the, the street signs, just snow had stuck to them. They were all white. It was like, there was no color anywhere except just peeking out. Occasionally were these, these tendrils of uh, green ivy, just brilliant green ivy. And it was beautiful. Uh, so as much as it was kind of scary, it was definitely a, an experience that I'm going to be keeping with me for a long time. But yeah. that's not what my geek out is about. No, but you nailed it with the Mr. Tumness reference because, yeah, man, you were definitely in Narnia. Absolutely. Uh, what I'm actually geeking out to lately is uh, the Avatar Legends RPG finally arrived. Yes. Dude, I've been seeing people on Discord blowing up about that. Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. The production quality on it is amazing. I know a few people have complained that the, the packaging wasn't great and it came kind of banged up, but mine is pristine. And I'm about maybe 90% of the way through reading the main core book. And I'm probably going to be running that for uh, one of my role-playing groups, the one that James is... Actually, you're in both of my groups. <laughs> <laughs> but the Peter Martin group that, that meets on Sundays, uh, I've been volunteered to run it. That'll be a treat. <laughs> Uh, so I'm really, really looking forward to that. I mean, um, I read that book as soon as it was released on PDF. I mean, I am not somebody who generally likes to read on PDF, and I don't like reading things on my phone, but I really couldn't help myself. Mm. And I was really pleased with the art and the just the general production quality in terms of in terms of the layout and um, combat. I think is a little is a little fuzzy to me, but that's. I mean, I'm just reading a rule book. I'll probably listen to some actual plays to iron out the things I think are subjective. But even looking at the binding and the stitching in this book, it looks like it's built to last. So I'm mm. I'm really, really impressed that they actually accomplished what they – I mean, they could not have imagined trying to accomplish something of this scale. Yeah, And it doesn't look like – it it lost anything in that in that translation, and I've been uh, binging Last Airbender and Korra. 
uh, <laughs> since it arrived so I can be prepared to run the game. Although it turns out that the group is leaning toward uh, running it in an era that is mostly detailed in novels, which I have not read. We'll see how that goes. Uh, and on the video game side, I've been playing uh, Marvel's Midnight Suns. I was and curious about, is it a fighting game or? It is a uh, tactical card drawing. It's kind of hard to, to exactly pin down what it is. I was hoping for XCOM with Marvel characters. And that is not what it is. But that's uh, a cool idea. I know. I was like, wait, Firaxis? They did XCOM. This is going to be awesome. But instead, you, you put together a squad of three heroes, and they've each got a, a deck of cards that determines what, what moves they can do. And then you're drawing the moves at random each turn. So while you know you might have Captain America having all this punchy, punchy stuff, but all the cards that you draw are, I'm going to sit back and block. I'm like, well, sitting back and block is not going to help me win this fight. <laughs> so it's not quite as... Uh, not quite the game that I wanted, but the fighting is very, very comic-y and, and it is punchy and you get to do the things where you're, you're knocking one bad guy into another bad guy and using the environment to hurt them. Spider-Man can fling rocks at people with his webs, that kind of thing. But the things that I'm, I'm really enjoying the most about it are the, uh, the voice acting is really, really good. They did a fantastic job with their casting and the direction. Unfortunately, it falls down somewhat by, from the animation because everybody's just got this wooden expression on their face mm. all the time. It's like the, the lip syncing is working, but it never reaches their eyes. <laughs> oh, no. Mm. So it's like a great, great voice acting, good script. The animation is pulling me out of it. The fighting, the combat mechanics are okay. They're not the, the bit that I'm enjoying about it. So it's kind of an uneven experience, but overall it's like, I'm, I'm enjoying myself. I've been playing it for a while. Um, I think I'm about two thirds of the way through the game now, assuming that each of their acts are about the same length. And I'll probably uh, give it another run through at a higher difficulty level with some of the DLC uh, when I'm done. I might give it a couple of months to in between. We'll see. But overall I can say if that kind of thing is your bag, then give it a try. If you don't like turn-based strategy very much, give it a pass. Uh, I don't know that the uh, the story is quite strong enough to make it say make it a must-play. I do enjoy the the particular cast of heroes they picked, though. They they made some interesting choices. It's like there's not a whole lot of stories I can imagine in which you'd put Nico from the Runaways in the same team as like Captain Marvel and Iron Man. Okay, that is interesting. Uh, yeah, the uh, the Midnight Suns themselves—that's the the main team—are uh, Nico from Runaways, the X Man Magic, who is uh, Colossus's sister, Blade, the Scarlet Witch, and oh, and Robbie Reyes, the Ghost Rider. Okay, I am identifying that you are talking about characters that are actual Marvel characters, and I have seen <laughs> them in things, and I'm trying to put them together into a cohesive whole. Those are at least all kind of supernatural bent characters. So they kind of work together okay, but it's like I wouldn't have expected to see them all in the same place. And then they're joined by the Avengers. You've got Iron Man and Doctor Strange and uh, Captain Marvel. Wolverine shows up in the middle of it for some reason. It's because he's Wolverine. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, we got a Marvel game. We'll put Wolverine in there. Everybody likes Wolverine. 
it's an interesting cast of characters that you don't, don't necessarily expect to see together. So it's, that's been kind of interesting. I'm just imagining Blade talking to Tony Stark and that conversation just <laughs> going badly. Yes, it does. Okay. I mean, it's a mission accomplishment. Many of these characters have been cast in Marvel TV shows. I would love to see some of these people make it to the big screen because yeah. like, especially Robbie Reyes, ghostwriter in the agents of shield, the gentleman who they got for that role was fantastic. Nicholas cage. No, just, I just, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I had to do that. I had to do that. Of course. I don't remember his name. I just remember that I really enjoyed him. Yeah. What's funny. There is a, uh, a little side plot of blade having a crush on captain Marvel. That's pretty funny. Huh? He starts a book club as a uh, way of being able to spend time with her. <laughs> okay. That, that. Okay. Yeah. I don't even know where to go with that. I, I got nothing. <laughs> Blade in a book club. Yep. So that's my geek out. How about you, Mike? It's been a fairly geek light month. Um, other than obsessively still playing Tunic. Uh, I don't want to like bore our listeners by going over two episodes again but i mean my gosh this the layers upon layers upon layers of secrets in a game is really impressive the replay value is still so darn high so instead of just rehashing um, i thought that i would take a moment to talk about a very adult subject data privacy because there's nothing that says that you're adult like having to worry about your data security and this isn't going to be like a try this system or try this system. I mean, it's the reality is this uh, last month I had my social security number stolen and I don't have any known leaks. I'm really tight with where this information goes. And my first clue that something was wrong is that I got a letter from a bank that said, hi, we really can't open that account you requested until you unlock your social security number. Once you get to your social security number unlocked, please feel free to give us a call at that number. So uh, having not opened any bank accounts and having locked my social security number some time ago because of a, of a near miss, I took a look at that letter. The number to call on the bank actually did match the number of a real bank in Ohio, and I called the fraud division of that real bank. Also, always check these letters to see that the numbers that they're giving you are actual, you know, real places, mm -hmm. uh, because you can get a fake letter from a real bank with a fake number, and then they ask you for your social security number. Uh, the person on the phone did ask for my social security number, and I said, I'm not giving you that when that's exactly what's in question. <laughs> um, like the, They said, that's fair, um, and they, the, they offered no pressure. There were other things that said this is legit, but... This is just the reality that we live in, is that with your social security number, people can open up bank accounts, they can take out loans, they can file your taxes and get your refund ahead of you. So it's, in with this day and age, it is not really a matter of, are you going to, to suffer some sort of data loss incident uh, or personal security loss? It's a matter of, of what is the scope of an agency that has your information? Like what, what mm -hmm. is the level of damage they're going to sustain and whether you're going to have to cover this on your own or if somebody's going to offer 
data protection for you. So if you're not constantly taking out loans or if you're not trying to buy, currently trying to buy a house or a car or switch uh, switch cities, that means that you have to open up a bank account. It is easy enough to lock your social security number. It's not foolproof, but it gets you one step ahead of, of data thieves. So uh, I'm going to put a link to Equifax in the show notes which is one of three credit bureaus where you can lock your social security number just to stay one step ahead. And I've, and I've had to do several things to continue to file paperwork and police reports just to make sure that somebody doesn't actually succeed in doing damage. Yeah. And I recommend since there's three credit reporting bureaus, if you're detecting trouble, don't go to all three of them at once, uh, get one of them, wait four months, get the second one four months again, get the third one. That way you've spread out your coverage over the whole year because you can only request the free report from each of them once annually. So by by spreading it out that way, you get more coverage over the entire year and you can make sure you keep a better eye on things. Right. Here's a question. If someone yeah. has, and this is just for the sake of covering all your bases, you believe that someone has access to your social security number. As you go about checking that, should you also begin checking to see if there's been any activity on your credit cards because if they have if they've gotten access to one they could have gotten access to the others it's entirely possible this is the thing is that a lot of these companies use your social security number as a way of uniquely identifying you so one of the things that they may ask is what is the last four or what is the last five of your of your social security number it's a good idea to keep an eye on your debit and your credit anyway, but those are things that you're more likely to notice right off the bat. The things you're less likely to notice is if somebody's taking out a loan. So mm -hmm. if you get any suspicious activity, you can request, as Brian suggested, request a credit report, which will tell you who's been trying to use your social security number, who's been trying to use your credit rating to well it'll tell you that someone has been trying to it won't tell you who they were oh yeah 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 uh because mm -hmm. who did it it was you obviously it has your social security number yeah and when yeah, i was you, you totally opened up that swiss bank account and used it to buy gold in geneva <laughs> and that that's specific then mike don't worry about that i don't know who did that it definitely wasn't me <laughs> that's that's the difference is because i know where you live i don't know where this person lives who, who tried you, to steal my do you know where i live really <laughs> do you know what all i have to do is say hey joy i'm sending you a video game it's in the mail and she will surrender that address faster than you can get out here's the thing who do you think set up the swiss bank account Oh yeah, that absolutely was joy. There was no reason. She's probably the one with the expertise. <laughs> you can also get fraud alerts, which will put a one-year alert that if somebody is trying to to use your social security number, they have to contact you directly, and you specify how they contact you. This is good only for a year, unless you have a police report, which I do, and it's really limited in terms of what they can do to actually catch the person but you're basically just trying to stay one step ahead. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I used my geek out time, not for something that was exciting, but something that I'm hoping will benefit some of you listeners. If you decide that, especially during this tax season, uh, that you want to, you want to get things tightened down. 
And I also did have to file with the IRS to let them know somebody stole it. So I at least have a process started if they try to steal my tax return. <laughs> Good luck, dude, because that, that's, that never goes well. The next thing I wanted to talk about was uh, the myth of sacred prostitution in antiquity. Oh, I saw that anime. Yeah. how Do, do you like it? Uh, the first three episodes were kind of questionable. I got pretty good after that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I really thought that this was going to be a historical book that you checked out from the library. But of course, of course, it's an anime. Mike, are we telling the truth? We are absolutely not telling the truth. <laughs> it is. It, it absolutely is a nonfiction book that talks about the concept of basically the idea of temple prostitutes. Uh, you'll find this in uh, biblical interpretation uh, periodically, some segments of Genesis, some segments of particularly uh, Hosea, uh, that there is that there is this idea that there are prostitutes that work in fertility cults. And what uh, the author, Stephanie Budin... Budin? 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 I've never talked to her. I don't know. Um, the, <laughs> the author essentially lays out the thesis that this idea of people in, in temples having relations with strangers for money is a house of cards. And that a lot of the interpretive structures and the, the archaeological interpretations have been conflations of other practices that do not equal sacred prostitution. And which was a real big thing for me, especially as I'm going to, to study with our church, First Corinthians, because there was assumed to be a very large temple prostitution practice run out of the cult of Aphrodite that was in uh, that was in Corinth but the author's been laying out a, a very persuasive case that this stuff just didn't happen and owing in large part to something that a Herodotus seems to have just made up in his ancient histories as well as just a few Herodotus made things up you're kidding I know I'm shocked shocked I'm, I say oh. So is Herodotus. Anyway, yeah, and I'm only about, I would say about a third to to a half of the way through the book. But so far, the the evidence has been, I would say, sufficiently deconstructed to say that this was not actually a thing. It, it was uh, it was loaned to me by a friend of mine at work, because obviously when you work at a school of psychoanalysis, what you're obviously doing is talking about the ancient world and the cult of Aphrodite. <laughs> she got her PhD in classics. She's cool. So she's, she's in the club and I'm, I'm really debating whether I want to buy this thing on my own, but it's like hardcover is a hundred bucks and softcover is 50. Ooh. So it's like mm. these academic works are pretty, yeah, pretty steep. You got to charge that much when you're only going to sell it to 30 or 40 people. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty much what I've been geeking out to this month. I would like to point out that even though you were joking about it being an anime at the beginning, you wait. We're going to see a preview. 
<laughs> Set for spring 2023. Myth of sacred prostitution and antiquity. Oh, somebody gets reincarnated back into the ancient world and is just shocked that all he does is when he goes to the cult of Aphrodite that he brings his money and it's just incense offerings. Incense offerings everywhere. What's going on? It's like the opposite of most anime. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. There's a plenty of those opportunities in Corinth. Like the, 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 those places are just down the street. You can't miss them. They have large, obvious signs. They're not written language. They're, they're pictorial. <laughs> this is archaeology, not something I've made up. That is for real. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, I, I almost feel compelled to mention that I watched the first episode of a show called Space Dandy. <laughs> Wait, did you say Space D&D or Space Dandy? Space Dandy. Okay. that. And normally I wouldn't go for something like that, but it was by the same guy that made uh, Cowboy Bebop, and supposedly they're in the same universe. I only watched the first episode because there is chain restaurant that they spent a, about a third of the episode in was called Boobies. <laughs> For some reason, and the sign was pretty much exactly what you described. So, <laughs> the thing is, when when you say space dandy, for some reason, I'm imagining some really foppish French guy with the really high hair in space, <laughs> and that's that I'd watch. Well, the uh, the intro thing is space dandy. He's a dandy guy in space, and something about uh, his pompadour. He definitely has the hair, and yeah, it's it's something. But <laughs> you made it through one episode of. I will take that recommendation. Yeah, <laughs> as it is presented, that's more than I was able to. I almost got through one episode of Space Dandy, and I, I started for pretty much the same reasons that you did, Brian. But then about ten, twelve minutes in, I just yeah, it's this just is not for me. It. Yeah. I also watched uh, Samurai Champloo. Oh, that's a good runner, one. And also supposedly set in the same universe, although I don't see any connective tissue between them. <laughs> I think that they're just saying that. There yeah. is no connection, but they're just saying it to hope that we will start watching. And it's, eh, well, this is okay, so I'll keep watching. <laughs> right. I'm Which looking up space. What happened? Yeah, I am looking up space dandy on YouTube, and yeah, that appears to be a thing. <laughs> and soon, from the makers of space dandy, myth of sacred prostitution. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it for my geek out. Well, that will lead to me. Like you, my geek out's been pretty light these last couple of months. It's been, as I said, just kind of about surviving. And getting through the week. But there have been a couple of things that I've thoroughly enjoyed. Um, the first is a, another British television series. I talked about All Creatures Great and Small in the last episode. And this one, it's also set in pre-wartime England. But then as the series progresses, it is wartime England. But this one is about a, a British police detective in the town of Hastings. His name is Foyle, and the show is called Foyle's War. It does a great job of showing what was happening in England, what the mood was among the people uh, as the beginnings of World War II 
were happening as the war progressed. Like in the description of every episode, it will say March 1943, August 1943, April 1944. And the events happening in the world influence what is happening in the show. It provides a bit of a backdrop and also plot points to uh, the mystery or the murder that Chief Detective Foyle is currently solving. Great show. Very well acted. If you like period shows, if you like murder mysteries, I definitely recommend it. Um, that one went on for a while, didn't it? Yes, it did. It's, I mean, British season. So there's only like about three to five episodes per season, but it got like nine seasons. Yeah, I, I remember that was one that I, I think I caught one or two episodes long time ago, back before I moved, moved out of Wichita. And I was surprised when I saw it with it was still running when I was in college. I'm down to the last two seasons where the war is over. He's retired from the police force and he was immediately picked up by MI5. That sounds like that could go well or that it could go not. <laughs> well, we'll see. He's gone from a little seaside town to London and from investigating mysteries and murders to government intelligence. So... We'll see how it goes. Hopefully the writing will continue as it has. And if it does, then whatever uh, scenario they put him in, it should be good. One bad thing that did happen to me over the holidays was just a few days before Christmas, I got COVID. Hooray. I've gone all of these years, haven't got COVID once, and then I get it right before Christmas. And it, it just hit me hard. Because it was during Christmas... Thankfully, neither my wife nor my kids got it. I told them, look, you're healthy. You've taken tests. You don't have it. We usually, like Brian, go to Kansas to visit family over the holidays. I told Joy, go see your mom. Take the kids with you. I'll be fine by myself. And since I was going to be home by myself for quite a while, as a Christmas gift, she bought me the Xbox game Pentiment. And it is a very unique game. It comes from uh, Obsidian Entertainment. They're known for games like Fallout New Vegas. Okay. But this one is a light RPG narrative adventure set in the 16th century. The style of animation looks like a living, moving medieval illumination. Ooh. It is gorgeous. You play this 16th century scribe. As he goes about his work uh, from town to town, talking with people, I may have mentioned this is a murder mystery game. A lot of beautiful elements, very well-written characters. But the thing that first I thought was weird that I came to enjoy the most was that there's no voice acting. Huh. When people talk, there's a word bubble above them. But instead of words just appearing, you hear the sound of an invisible quill writing on parchment and the words appear and depending on a person's status and education level everyone has a different font oh that's cool (laughs) what's great is that as you hear the the scratching effect and the they're talking sometimes like the ink will seep and bleed and sometimes a word will be misspelled it'll be scratched out and the word will be written again (laughs) that's a cool bit of flourish It was delightful, and it added to the feeling and the element of the game. I'm taking it very slow because it is very information-heavy. 
And you really have to be on the ball about remembering your relationships, who you've talked to, what they've said, uh, what their history is, because it's one of those games where who you talk to and the decisions that you make and people's attitude towards you, depending upon your answers, these all influence the progression of the plot and how it ends. I've made a couple of big goofs because someone will ask me a question. And I'm like, I have no idea. I'm just going to guess. I'm like, oh, how disappointing. I'm like, well, that's going to come back to bite me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fun little game. It sounds like there's built-in replay value. Oh, there definitely is. And for the last bit of my geek out, uh, back to anime. Uh, <laughs> I've actually been watching an anime recently. One that I always enjoyed was the anime Bleach. A recent arc of it, like it, everyone thought it was done. And then the author of Bleach, I mean, Tyke Kubo is his name, I think. He, a few years ago, released a new uh, manga series called The Thousand Year Blood War. That takes place uh, a bit of time after the last season of Bleach. And uh, they finally animated it and have been releasing it in sections. And I've been watching the dubbed version on Hulu. And because it's only a short series, the animation has been really tight. And I was very happy that all of the original English voice actors, most of them anyway, are reprising their roles. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. More of something that I enjoyed before. So now it's just I wait for every Friday for a new dubbed episode to come out. <laughs> and that will wrap it up for me. So on to our main topic. What are we talking about today, guys? I think we just have a lot of books to recommend. Yeah, this was kind of a thinker. We've had this idea on our list for a while, but it's one of those things that it's when you sit down to do it, it's actually kind of hard because there are things that you love and that you read and reread over again. But at a certain point, those things aren't probably show worthy in terms of recommending because Look, folks, if you haven't read Lord of the Rings, you're probably not going to because these three guys told you you should. <laughs> so finding something that's like not an obvious, well, duh, you're recommending that and something that's a little less duh that we haven't talked about a hundred times on the show already is, yeah, that's kind of kind of an interesting challenge for this episode. Well, we broke this out into uh, a couple of genres. Um, I think the original ones were sci-fi, fantasy, and historical fiction. And then I said, I don't really read historical fiction, so we'll just have a grab bag instead. <laughs> I like the grab bag. Me too. Yeah. And so we've each just selected one title from uh, from each of those categories and also nonfiction. Um, and I'll, I'll kick it off since I started to geek out. I'll start this too. Uh, in the sci-fi category, I picked my books based on things that had been that have affected me like through my whole life um, things that were formative and so for the sci-fi I chose Ender's Game um, by Orson Scott Card and Card's got some problematic uh, ideas sometimes uh, he does tend toward a little bit of racism uh, but uh, Ender's Game was it was so compelling the first time that I read it um, that it's it really shaped a lot of, uh, of how I view science fiction since then. Um, I presume both of you have read that one also? 
I hadn't read it until pretty late in life. Like it was, it was before the movie came out, but it was, it was relatively recent. Same here. It was one that I saw a trailer for the movie and I thought that looks interesting enough to watch in theater, but I don't want the the movie to be my first experience with it. So Mm. I think I need to finally go out and read the book. I kind of wish I hadn't experienced the movie at all whatsoever. (laughs) It was definitely a movie that Harrison Ford was in. (laughs) It was definitely a movie produced by a visual effects company. Mm hmm. Long on the visual effects, light on the plot. (laughs) And that's the thing is that this is, I mean, I don't really know how you'd render that as a film anyway, because you've got such a young protagonist going through Mm -hmm. such a, a traumatizing emotional journey being developed into basically he's, he's having the, the adults in his wife, in the adults in his life, manipulate him into being a super weapon. I mean, he's the strategist, but really he's piloting a super weapon. And and he doesn't know that he's doing it. Right. Yeah. In fact, he doesn't even know that he's achieved the end goal and that he's he's done it. He's utterly defeated this unbeatable enemy for humanity until he looks up and he sees all of the, the military brass like shaking hands, clapping each other on the back and celebrating. Like why? Why? By the way, spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just looking like, wow, they're really happy. I got the high score. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, re- like, I said too much, but there's a lot more to this journey than that. I mean, and this is this is the thing: is that on the surface of it, these these are exceptional children. They're really pulled out really young, and I would say almost too young as to strain the credibility. But I mean, for some reason, it seems to work. It's a fascinating book. We've got it on audiobook. And so we this is this is sometimes our nighttime listen. Why traumatize children is our nighttime listen as we go to sleep? I don't know. Don't you <laughs> judge me. I mean, I say these kids are traumatized, but it's not they don't really put the reader through the ringer. Mm-hmm. Which I think is good. Some of the things that have stuck with me with that I've, I think, formed parts of my personality are this this notion of when you're confronted with a problem, um, you don't always have to tackle it in the way that it's supposed to be solved. Hmm. Um, the whole point of, of Ender's brilliance was that uh, he solved the actual problem in front of him instead of being limited by the, uh, the doctrine uh, that he was saying modeled around him. And a lot of times I get stuck in this, this uh, tendency to want to do things the right way. It's like, okay, I've got something that I need to do. I'm going to look up how other people have solved this in the past, and I'm going to follow their steps because I know it works. But a lot of times what I need to do is I need to look at it with that purity of, uh, I've, of not knowing how it's been solved in the past and focus on the solution that I want. Because a lot of times those other solutions that other people have come up with, you know, they're over-engineered because they're trying to uh, to cover all the corner cases because this is something that's got to be distributed to 100 people. Or they're stuck in that saying, this is the way it's being done, therefore this is the way it's going to be done and we're not going to take any any chances or make any modifications. But if you don't have all of that burdening you, 
in your solutions. You might come up with uh, an idea that is innovative enough that it changes things, or it might just be, hey, this is a good enough solution. Hmm. Um, and so every once in a while, it helps me to remember to, to get out of that analysis paralysis I tend to be in. To, to try to remember that the enemy gate is down. Exactly. <clears throat> well, why don't I go next? Uh, I really waffled on this book quite a lot, but I, to the surprise of my co-hosts, because this is not in the notes, uh, I've decided to recommend The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. <laughs> uh I'd been kind of going back and forth, and it was two things. One, Brian, when you had said what's formative, and also when we were doing mic tests, I recited about half of the first <laughs> chapter verbatim from memory. <laughs> uh, I'd say that's formative, yes. Yeah. The, <laughs> the reason why I'm recommending this book is just... First of all, Douglas Adams has an incredible, uh, an incredible writing style that really is written for the ear. You can pull this book out and read it aloud. Like it, it, you can read it to someone. And in fact, when I was reading it, I often would. I'd pull out a passage that I'd find so amusing, and I'd read it to the person next to me, and they. Dude, you know, not randos, you know, not on the train. And then they'd get up out of the uh, seat on the bus and go to the other end. No, I bring <laughs> people from the other end of the bus to like it was it turned into a whole recitation. No, this was not when I was in Boston. <laughs> I don't read things to strangers. Uh, when I'd read a section to a friend, they'd be very amused because this is it. It just sounds good. And also his wordplay with absurdity is just so delicious like these uh, uh, talking about vogon spaceships they hung in the air the same way that bricks don't <laughs> and uh it it just makes it a delight to read and plus i have uh i have a deep appreciation for absurdism and this just hit all the right notes uh, i've read all six books in the trilogy and uh, of course, the first two are, I, I think, are are the best. Like, read read the first one if you're if you're into it. Keep on going. Uh, don't be daunted by the size of these collections. You'll you'll find five books in one volume. These are these are short novels. Pick up the first one. They're very easy to read. They are very easy to read, and also his satire, his social criticism. Even though it's funny, it's pretty astute. So I, I enjoy it. I'm always, every election cycle, I'm reminded of his uh, statement that anybody who is capable of getting themselves elected president is in no way, should, uh, <laughs> definitely should not have the job. Right. <laughs> what was he phrase that? Similar to that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, make it my turn. I'm also going to go off note. I... <laughs> it's a good thing we have this outline. <laughs> outline, schmoutline. I had written down the Expanse series because of how much I've enjoyed it these last couple of months. I don't read a lot of science fiction. I haven't found much that has interested me. But after thinking about it a lot, I decided to actually make my recommendation 
the book that did not just get me started reading in science fiction, but got me back into reading books as a whole. And that would be The Heir to the Empire by Timothy Zahn. Yes! I almost put that one down. <laughs> I, I reread that more than I should admit on mics. <laughs> it, <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is the first of a trilogy by Timothy Zahn set five years after Star Wars Return of the Jedi. And I can't talk about how good these books are. He writes a Star Wars novel like you're watching it on the screen. Yeah. It carried that same feel of watching it. It did. You felt like this is the true direction. This is where things are going. This is the actual continued history of Star Wars because of the memorable characters that he wrote, the way that he wrote them, the way that he got the legacy characters of Han, Luke, Chewie, Leia. He got them just right. He got their essence correct. Like you can the hear books. them in your head. Exactly. And as I said, he introduced exciting new characters. Talon Card, Grand Admiral Thrawn, Mara Jade. And I read them now, like you, Mike, I read them again from time to time. It makes me a little sad because now they are considered legends ever since Disney came and swept the board of Star Wars. I read them. It just makes me a little sad because this is what might have been. You know, some I would actually argue don't that care. It, some would argue even this is what it should have been. I get that. You don't care. But I've talked at length some of my issues with the sequel trilogy. Fair. But that's a whole nother podcast or not because no one really wants to listen to me go on about it. Um, <laughs> it's just good science fiction. If you like good, solid science fiction, whether you're huge into Star Wars or not, give Air to the Empire a try. And back to the notes, that will lead us into fantasy, which is a good segue because that's basically what Star Wars is, space fantasy. Some would even argue that A New Hope is just space D&D. I mean, you're not mm -hmm. wrong. You can say the same thing about Star Trek, too. Yeah. It's even got an elf in it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll kick off fantasy. And for my recommendation, I suggest the Witcher series by Andrew Sapkowski. There have been games. They've been a TV show. The TV show has been pretty good. The games, very good. The books, great. There's a lot of them. But uh, the first one, The Last Wish, is, is okay. It's kind of uneven. He's a Polish author, so English, not his first language. So I, I feel like it also suffered a little bit from translation. But the later books, uh, Sword of Destiny, Blood of Elves, really good. Uh, introduced a larger narrative and storyline. Just good, good. Not grim dark, but a little bit darker fantasy. So, which of you wants to go next? I'll pick it up. I think I was 12 or 13. I had just come off of Lord of the Rings, and uh, my friend Paul handed me The Dragonbone Chair by Tad Williams. And these are, the, in my brain, the, the model of fantasy novel. I mean, Lord of the Rings is where everything came from, and you see it reflected everywhere, but in terms of what a fantasy novel is and what it's supposed to be, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn uh, was the trilogy that really cemented it for me. Um, it's got a few things in it that are tropes that I don't care for, like 
just kind of rebranding a lot of real world cultures. And we have the fantasy Vikings and the fantasy Inuit and the fantasy uh, English and the fantasy Romans. It's like, eh. But the way it all comes together and the characters have such depth and uh, Simon and Benedict are so real in my, in my mind. Um, and the, the character in particular of uh, Morganus, who is only in the first third of the first book, but his influence is threaded throughout all the whole thing. The, they spend the entire trilogy uh, unpacking things that he wrote. Um, but his, his bits of wisdom, like uh, never, never make your home in a place, but make it in your head and populate it with the people and the ideas. These are the furnishings in, in your true home. Hmm. Um, and it's just Williams can be difficult because he takes a really long time to get the, the story started. Like, uh, <clears throat> like many, uh, epic fantasy series, memory, sorrow and thorn is a, a journey, you know, Simon travels hither and yon across the world, but he doesn't leave the first castle for the first, I think it's 200 pages in before he actually leaves home. Uh, and so it can be a little bit difficult to get through that first third of the first book. Um, but I promise you it is worth it. It's just fantastic, fantastic stuff. Well, since we're out of co-hosts, I'll go next. <laughs> uh, I'm going to recommend Name of the Wind by Patrick mm. Rothfuss. And this is one that I kind of hesitated to recommend, not because... Not because I, I, I don't think it's an amazing work, but because it's one of those things that I feel like it's it's been present enough in the geekosphere that either you've read it or you've not, uh, and you're not going to. But in terms of fantasy picks, this is really where I have to land, because I don't read a lot of fantasy. I think that that for for me, James, uh, your your relationship with science fiction is kind of like my relationship with with fantasy but i had somebody shove this book in my hands and i sat down and i read it and once it got going i just could not put it down and rothfuss's use of language is really intriguing he has these wonderful and sometimes colorful similes and metaphors that just leap off of the page and create uh, images and textures and sensations that are uh, that are to me kind of like reading um, Peter Beagle. Like they wouldn't be the conventional thought of like, this is not how I would normally try to evoke an image. This is unconventional, yet it creates a brilliant image. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the book has a really interesting world where the religious mythology really feels like it's woven into the world in a very real way. Like, not that I feel like that the mythology itself is a, is necessarily a good or bad construct, but the way that it permeates the reality is so good. Uh, I actually told Rothfuss this at a book signing. Um, and it was really funny because as we're getting prepped, this is when he's really starting to get popular and he's he wasn't used to it yet. I don't know if he ever got used to it, 
but his sister was going down the line like, okay, please don't request anything long. Just give him the book, you know, give him the, the spelling of your name, what you want written in it. And, you know, you can say something, but don't, don't sit there and please don't sit there and talk to him. And it wasn't one of those, well, he doesn't like to associate with you plebes, you say. <laughs> um, but because the there's so many people that he would talk to each and every one of you and he would love it. And no one would ever, ever leave or eat dinner or sleep that night. So you can't do it. <laughs> and so as he signs my book, I tell him that as somebody who's, whose own religious mythology is deeply important to him, I really appreciate the way that the religious mythology permeates the world. And his head just snaps up and his eyes just widen. He's like, there's so much there. And as I'm kind of being ushered away and I'm like, I know. He's like, and he, you can almost see him like reaching out. But, but, but I want to talk about this. There's so much there. And I'm like, I know, I know. Um, because you have on, on one hand, you have people who are, who are devoutly religious. They're not main characters, but they're there. Uh, there are individuals who are uh, who are mentioned who are priests that are there for the position and some who are the sinister ministers which read the news uh, they are there <laughs> there are individuals who are superstitious like don't say Taylor's name and like well what are you you know what are you going to do about it and he's like no some you're going to make something bad happen if you use Taylor's name frivolously and so they start this this superstitious argument. Um, and so there are just bits of religion, devotion, superstition, and myth that are just on the lips of the characters. And it's kind of the background radiation of the world, which is in some ways very, very, very real in all the ways that it manifests. And I, I think that is just one aspect of incredible world building. So props to him there. I really need to reread those. I only, I've only read them once so far and I was kind of suckered into it because I saw everybody had been talking these books up and I knew it was going to be a trilogy and that the third one hadn't been written yet. And then I saw the slow regard of silent things had just been released. I'm like, Oh, great. It's done. I'm going to read them. Nope. No, that was just a novella about a side character. <laughs> but it was so good. And now I see why everybody was asking, was telling me to read it. Mm -hmm. And now I get to suffer along with everyone else waiting on pins and needles for the next one. <laughs> well, it's only fair. Cause that's basically what you did to me with wheel of time. Yes. <laughs> Karma. <laughs> so uh, shall we move on into our nonfiction? Let's move yes. on into nonfiction. Uh, my pick for this one is, I mean, we're a Christian podcast, right? I mean, we, we are right. We say so every every time. Okay. Yes. All right. So we may as well make it real. Um, I'm going to recommend uh, Three Mile an Hour God by Kusoke. Ku See, I've been mispronouncing the name forever. <laughs> I'm going to say it wrong because that's how I've been saying it by Kusuke Koyama. But I've been told that Japanese doesn't have open-ended vowels. So it's Kusuke Koyama. So this is a really accessible book. But it really kind of hits home. Koyama has a very slow and meditative style. And it 
it starts off almost like a sermon illustration with every with every essay and you kind of have to just kind of come along with this vision and then see the point that he's trying to make and it's fascinating because though he is japanese he wrote primarily in english and he did that really for our benefit one of the things that he had said is that uh is that uh japan learned its theology from from the west and now the west needs to learn its theology from the east because for too long christianity has been the dominion of the west uh, it is entrenched in western metaphors in western language in western uh in western he doesn't i don't think he says it as such but as western philosophical foundations so i had uh, i was listening to another podcast who had read the book and my recommendation and in some of the discussion they had noticed that that koyama mentions buddha quite a lot and there was this uneasiness with some sections of the book until he started talking about syncretism and how he abhors syncretism and the commentary was well i think that was really good that he included that chapter on syncretism because there was so much mention of buddha and confucius and like these are the philosophical foundations of japan in the discussion they were saying well we don't mention in all of our discussions plato and aristotle but yet we do like we we don't use their names but the the foundations on which we've built western thought and those foundations on which we have built western philosophy and theology are very much a part of our everyday conversations that we are not aware of and so sometimes it's shocking reading some of this from an eastern perspective but the perspective is is unless we are going to continually colonialize christ and to make christ the possession of the western culture to dole out we don't uh, we don't own the metaphors and we don't own the discussion um if this is a fundamentally christ-centered thought which it is then we need to engage something other than ourselves to understand where our cultural foundations are having an impact on the way that we think and the way that we practice and i think it's it's very worth reading this book even if it's just for the the cultural self-examination of what lenses you bring to christianity and I can go on for you know a lot more about the book. <laughs> my my wife is doing a doctorate uh, uh, based on 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 her encounter with Koyama. So you know we're gonna get we're gonna get her her own podcast. It's fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> I'm not joking about that. Anyway, go on. I will go next. A few years ago, I mentioned on the podcast how much I was enjoying the Netflix series Turn Washington Spies which dealt with the uh, Culpeper spy ring in the Revolutionary War. So I decided to check out the book that the series was based on, Washington Spies, the Story of America's First Spy Ring. And it tells the story of uh, four real-life childhood friends who formed the Culper spy ring that, not exaggerating, it changed the course of the Revolutionary War. 
The author dug deep into the Library of Congress, letters by George Washington and those in the ring uh, to research the book, gave you a really great idea about early espionage and the desperation of these people, their fight against such a titanic force in the British military. Really good, entertaining read, and no surprise that it was turned into a pretty entertaining Netflix series. Of course, the uh, the Netflix series made some alterations, and so you have the voiceover, but Washington was deceived, for another <laughs> ring was made. <laughs> I had a, uh, a near miss with this book. I picked it up on the, off the shelf at a bookstore and read the back of it, and almost went home with it, but I put it back and I don't remember what I bought instead. It might've been the book that you're going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> might've been. So what is well, the book that said. you're going to talk about? <laughs> uh, I selected the drunkard's walk by Leonard Laudenow. I don't have any idea how that man's last name is pronounced. This is not a book about alcohol. It is a book about randomness. Uh, the drunkard's walk is a description of if you have uh say a guy and he can walk in any direction and you choose one at random and he walks one, you know, one foot in that direction. And then you choose another direction at random and he walks one foot in that direction. And he'll, he'll describe this chaotic pattern. Um, it's called Brownian motion. Oh, and it's referred to as the drunkard's walk because he's just choosing a, uh, a direction at random. And it's, Depending on the the constraints you put on it, you might say like, okay, he can go within like a twenty degree angle of his last movement, and so that'll make the the pattern different. Uh, but the book is all about um, probabilities and statistics and the the way randomness affects us. Um, he goes into things like uh, lotteries. Uh, for any given lottery, you've got roughly twice as much. Uh, you're twice as likely to be killed in an auto accident on your way to buy a ticket as you are to win it. Um, things like all of the, the events that we attribute to causality, uh, there is so much random, so many random factors involved in each of those events that what we think of as the cause really played very, very small role in uh in the outcomes um and it's just it really makes uh alters kind of the way you think about the decisions that you're making and the the peril of a decision mm. because ultimately you can't know what the outcome is going to be uh it's chaos theory um and so if you're agonizing over what's going to happen if i do this what's going to happen if i do that and you're not taking into account the fact that the entire rest of the world is also acting on these events, then you're taking a burden on yourself that is way outsized for the influence that you actually have. Um, and some people might find that uh, oppressive. I personally find it kind of freeing that I don't have to make the right choice. And this is going back to what I was talking about with Ender's Game too. Is like, since I tend to overanalyze things, I tend to always want to make the right choice, uh, realizing that my right choice or my wrong choice isn't going to actually affect things as much that I think that, as I think that they are. 
makes it easier to actually pull the trigger on making a decision. That makes a lot of sense. And it does sound freeing, at least to me. Mm. And Lodenow's got a, uh, a really light and accessible way of writing. I've read, I think, three of his books. As a matter of fact, I think I talked about uh, one of them on the podcast earlier. I read uh, Euclid's Window a while back by him. Uh, and I just, I really enjoy his style and the way he makes these very uh, esoteric, high-level mathematical concepts accessible. Well, you you got me wanting to read a math book, so you must have done something right. Yeah, same. <laughs> so shall we move on to our grab bag topics? I think we shall. Well, I will continue the pattern that we seem to have uh, developed and take the first one since I had the last one. Jonathan Livingston Siegel by Richard Bach. I haven't read that in so long. I haven't either. I kind of wanted to reread it before I talked about it because it had been such a long time. I uh, don't think I've ever heard of this book. That doesn't surprise me. It's kind of a... Uh, it's kind of weird. It is kind of weird. The The premise is uh, it's about a seagull named Jonathan. That sounds pretty and, standard so far. Yeah. Yep. And he enjoys flying way more than the rest of his flock. Like the rest of the seagulls are content to do their gliding and swoop down and grab a fish occasionally. But Jonathan wants to go fast and he wants to go high and he wants to dive deep and the other seagulls just don't get it. Uh, and so eventually they ostracize him, but uh, he continues learning more flying techniques and being faster and flying higher and going deeper. And he eventually transcends seagullness. It's a, it's a transcendental philosophy novel. And I don't want to say too much about it because it's been so long since I read it and I'll get things wrong. But the thing that it did for me, since I read it, I think I, my dad handed it to me when I was in my mid-teens. Um, and this was the first time that I had really been challenged to read something that did not agree with the worldview I had been taught. And I wasn't given like a study guide or anything. This wasn't a, a class assignment where I had to write a report. It was just my dad handed me this book that he knew was going to do something to me. And boy, did it. Because now I'm having to struggle with these ideas of, you know, what does my, my religious beliefs, do they intersect with this at all? How do they interact with it? Um, what am I going to take from it that I can use as this is useful? What do I have to discard? Because, you know, it's, it was a very, very challenging and, and transformative book for me. As much as it's a fable about this uh, Dippy Seagull. Um, and I think it set me up for having to, to really be critical about the things that I was reading and being able to synthesize disparate ideas into you know being able to take what's what's useful synthesize it with what i currently believe and come out with something that i think is more true than any of the things that i'd had before if that makes any sense at all mm -hmm. yeah i say this partially as a joke but i'm also <laughs> partially serious this sounds exactly like something that dreamworks is going to turn into a movie Oh. in the next few years because let's face it they do rather love their allegorical fables oh that would go so bad 
That would just <laughs> that would go so bad. So yeah, they're they're probably on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just imagine it animated seagull <sighs> named John. You'll see him flying. Here's some orchestral music, and then you see the title screen for the movie Higher. I, I mean, they've made animated films on adult themes based on animals before, which is why nobody goes and watches Watership Down. <laughs> oh, I showed that one to Joy, and she did not like me for it. I, I she still like, doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I should rewatch that, and then every time I almost do, I'm like, no. No, I did so, that once when I was five. I don't need to do it again. Apparently, there was a a film, 1973. In order to make seagulls act on cue and perform aerobatics, they built radio-controlled gliders that looked like real seagulls from a few feet away. <laughs> but none of this footage was used in the final cut of the film. I can't, look, <laughs> if, I don't see what the trouble is. If you want seagulls to perform aerobatics, you just throw Cheetos. It's not hard. <laughs> well, in the line of uh, introspection and examination from the grab bag, I'm going to recommend uh, Sophie's World. I know that's not what's on the notes, but this is what's happening. Um, <laughs> not, I want to emphasize, as I had to explain to many distraught intro to, uh, to philosophy students, Sophie's Choice, which is a completely <laughs> different thing which is why your paper made no sense, which is why I'm giving you the opportunity to redo it. <laughs> At what phase in a philosophy class did you think that maybe, just maybe, this had nothing to do with what you were studying? Um, really, Sophie's world is, um, it's a Trojan horse. You have this nice uh, little plot and really the Greek soldiers inside the wooden horses is the history of Western philosophy. And that sounds agonizing, but it's not. It actually is. Um, it's a pretty engaging read. It's pretty straightforward. Uh, I think it's enjoyable. I couldn't because of the the rules that they had. <laughs> like this is this is the thing uh, when I was when I was teaching philosophy. Um, they, you know, they, there was this thing, you can't make me read this, that you're an adjunct, there are rules for adjuncts. And I would look at them and I said, <laughs> yeah, that's what my SLO keeps telling me. But I organized it so people would often choose to read this book. I think one of the fascinating things about this is not just that it, that it presents ideas that allow you to examine and to synthesize, but it gives you a protagonist who in some ways lives out not the best reaction to learning things that makes her think critically. Uh, I can, I can think of several portions in the book where she starts getting really haughty and talking to her mother like, Oh, well mother, you just don't understand higher critical thinking such as I, your 13 year old daughter do. And it's like, how, how, how do you, and, it, and it's one of those things, but it's a, a very real experience. And I, I had an intro class one time say to me at the end of the summer, we were taking a summer course and they had said, so do you have any parting words of wisdom? 
and nobody had ever asked me this. Like the class wasn't about me. It was about, it was about Western philosophy. And so I said, yeah, thinking back on a lot of people that I knew who had been exposed to new understanding and new, um, new wisdom and decided to lord it over people, um, with their newfound intro, their newfound intellectual <laughs> prowess, that they got in an introduction class. Um, yellow belt zombies again. <laughs> oh my gosh! I had a yellow belt zombie show up at my church one time, and I I really needed to I, like I didn't say it, but I wanted to just pat her on the head and say, "You realize that you feel really, really, really empowered and liberated by the class I teach, right?" Um, but you know, I didn't, I didn't ever say that that would not, that would not be appropriate. Um, so I told the class, yeah, don't be Sophie. Um, and I explained why and how she reacted to others. And I, you know, at the end of this class that these people had considered a great journey, I'd said, you comprehended something someone else originally thought. Congratulations. We deserve to be their pets. <laughs> have a great summer see you uh enjoy the rest of your time and that was the, like curtain <laughs> and scene nice. yep pretty much but sophie's world is accessible but critically examine sophie as you critically examine yourself well that will leave it to me to wrap up grab bag and in a book choice that is going to surprise no one it's historical fiction and i've read quite a few of these so coming up with one was hard but i finally settled on the unquiet bones by melvin Starr. it's the first book in the chronicles of hugh de singleton who was a 14th century surgeon in england and his life and how he goes from being a newly practicing surgeon in oxford to treating a major lord of the realm and becoming that lord's bailiff at Bampton Castle. And uh, uh, it talks about his life. It talks about uh, his daily duties, uh, his medical practice. And because that's not enough, every book also uh, has him solving a murder because, you know, it's the Dark Ages. People are dying all the time. As physicians do. <laughs> I won't say it's it's like slice of life, but... The author really did his homework about the daily practices of people in this time period. There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of little things that are included, which make these characters and make this time period seem real in the pages. As you're reading it, you're like, yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm reading what it might have actually been like. And you can't help but root for the character Hugh. Because he is he's a kind-hearted man, very humble, highly intelligent. You root for him. Everything from solving the mysteries, getting on the good side of the nobles, finally finding a young lady to marry, and starting a family. He's a very likable protagonist. I've recommended them to several people. I even recommended them to Brian, who then went and bought a different book. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like when you recommended that that game to me and i bought a different game a different, I bought yes yes i'm sensing a pattern i tell someone to try something they're like sure and they go get something else completely <laughs> maybe it's In my me defense, somebody else had recommended the book that i did read it resembled this enough that i thought this was your recommendation 
And I finished it and thought, why did James recommend this? It's kind of problematic. <laughs> yeah, prior to recording, he's like, James, I really didn't like this book. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And then we got to be like, I've never read this book, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> that does not sound familiar to me. <laughs> like, like, it's, it sounds up my alley, but I don't think I'm going to be reading it now. James, you should really check out this Expanse series. Like, Mike, this book interview with a geisha that you recommended doesn't sound anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, originally when our uh, topic was uh, historical fiction, I was looking at historical fiction books that I'd read and I was like, I tried to read a Western once. Like, my dad was really into Western. So I picked up, you know, the big name in Westerns, Louis L'Amour, The Haunted Mesa. It's about the Anasazi Indians and it turned out they'd been abducted by aliens. So the one time I tried to read a, read a Western, it turned out to be sci-fi anyway. <laughs> it, it was western before you picked it up brian and yeah, you turned yeah, sci-fi. i transformed it <laughs> i thought i was taking brian to the movies to see desperados lo and behold it turned into cowboys versus aliens <laughs> it's weird your very presence adds spaceships i'll take it I'll start putting that on my resume <laughs> yes but then you'll get notes in your special effects, uh, <laughs> Brian needs less spaceships, 20% less spaceships. Please remove spaceships from historical drama. <laughs> well, guys, did that wrap up our book recommendation? I think that'll about wrap up our book recommendation. At least the ones that we wrote down and some of the ones we didn't. <laughs> and listeners, if this episode does feel like it's a bit short, we've done that on purpose because when You're it comes welcome. to book, yes, when it comes to book recommendations, we could have made this a lot, lot longer. But we love our listeners and we want to keep them. Yes. <laughs> and that will lead us to our zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, do you have a how-to guide on how we survive the apocalypse this time? Actually, uh, this one is not so much a how-to guide, but it is uh, actually a matter of understanding who our enemy is. And that can be found in uh, a book that I have to recommend, uh, which is the Zombie Autopsies by Steve Schlossman. Here we get a medical professional's guide to the inside and I mean, really the inside of zombies <laughs> with medical sketches and exactly the how to's of how their brains work and how on earth is the rest of them working and what on earth is causing this madness. So, yeah, Steve Schlossman is is going to educate us the way to to understanding our enemies in the zombie apocalypse. I was going to get this book, but then I saw that he was going to come out with a children's pop-up book of the same uh, subject. I'm like, I'll just wait for that and get it for the boys. <laughs> That's really gross, James. And Steve is really nice. I met him. He actually rescued my <laughs> wife when she was hit by a car in a rotary. Don't you talk about Steve like that. I... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, all that is true. Actually, that is real. All, that, all that is 100% true. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, seriously. Like he drops off Kaja and, and this guy is talking like, I know that voice. I know that. Vo Were you recently on NPR? As a matter of fact, I was like, oh, OK. So, yeah, our, our kids went to the same school. <laughs> As his wife is, you know, on the ground. Uh, guys, focus. <laughs> She was fine. Actually, no, that in, that wrist injury lasted quite a while. But she's okay now. She's fine. She's fine. She's fine. 
She's I don't fine. know what's happening. <sighs> this is the problem is I Yeah. I did I just ruin the show again? <laughs> And I think that will wrap it up for us, everyone. <laughs> Thank you all for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms. Mike, what's our Twitter? We are ArmsGeek on Twitter. Give us a like, maybe even subscribe, drop a comment. It really does help the podcast. And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.